Everyone doing okay? Yeah, nice to see you. My name is Matthew, if you've not met before, and if you're visiting, you're really, really welcome. Hope you're enjoying being with us. Hi to everyone at home as well, or watching online. Hope you're having a good day. Now then, I'm sure that um, a few weeks ago, when the Queen had passed away, and people were sharing their stories of meeting the Queen or being inspired by the Queen, there was one that was doing the rounds, and I'm sure that you heard it, uh, from the Queen's former royal protection officer, this guy called Richard Griffin, who told the story of when they were in Balmoral and walking um, in the countryside there. Do you know the story? Give me a nod if you've heard this one. Most of you, some, a few shakes heads. So they were walk, the Queen and uh, her royal protection officer walk in through Balmoral when they come across two American tourists and they start chatting. And then it turns out these Americans, they didn't recognize who the Queen was. And as the conversation's going on, and they said, oh, so how long have you been coming on holiday here? And, oh, you've been coming for 80 years? Oh, you must have met the Queen. She has a place around here. And the Queen, uh, like it to tease people, she said, well, I've not uh, met her, but Richard here sees her all the time. And so then they said, oh, really? And so then they hand their camera to the Queen and get the Queen to take a photo of them with the uh, royal protection officer so they could tell all their friends that they met a guy who knows the Queen. And, uh, and then, to be fair, he said that he then swapped around and he took a picture of them with the Queen, who they just thought was a random old lady. And, uh, and then they went off on their merry way with no idea what had happened. And then the, she said the Queen turned to him and said, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they get back to America. And they show people those photos and someone tells them that that was actually the Queen, which I thought was very funny. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a moment like that when... Um, you see someone or you come across something that's out of context. You know, when you like, you know, you used to, I don't know, you used to see a school teacher and then you suddenly see them, you know, somewhere else or uh, something of that nature. And it takes you a while to clock, you know, I don't know this person, I don't know this person from. And sometimes it's even, you know, when you've flown back home and you're looking at your photos later, that suddenly you clock and realize what actually happened. Now, today we're going to be starting a new series uh, on Esther, looking at the book of Esther. And Esther is a unique book in the Bible, and it's partly because it has a little bit of this kind of out-of-context feel. And it's firstly that the whole story takes place in Susa, which, is the, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. And so it's kind of outside you know, of the territory and the area and the land where most of the, the Bible accounts take place. But then also... Esther is the only book, very surprisingly, that doesn't mention God once. God's name, uh, and it's like explicitly God doing something, doesn't appear in the book of Esther at any point. He's never named in the book. And yet, in this story of a young woman who was orphaned by, as a girl, raised by her cousin, then taken from her home by the decree of the emperor, forced to marry this powerful and unstable man with little rights and no real power of her own, yet with courage and bravery, wisdom and tact, she orchestrates the rescue of her people, saving them from certain destruction. And in all this, we recognize God's hand at work in her life and over her life. And we see how God, number one, brings good out of evil just like he did uh, with Joseph in Egypt. And you remember the story when you know, Joseph, he says to his brothers later on that, you plotted evil against me, but God turned it into good in order to preserve the lives of many people who are alive today because of what happened. 
And we see how God is faithful and committed, even when his people are far off, even when they're in a distant land, even when they're, you know, far away, or even when they're flawed, and even when they falter in their own commitment towards God, he does not falter in his commitment to them, and he does not falter in his commitment to us. And you know, when we read um, the Bible and we look through the stories and we see the different characters, it's not always as simple as, oh, these are the goodies and these are the baddies, you know, like the children's version of stories that, you know, sometimes we hear or sometimes there's package room a little or whatever. It's not always goodies and baddies because the goodies are people too. You know, they're complex people, they're human beings and they're flawed and they make mistakes and they have their failings and yet God is always faithful. And isn't that good for us as well because... I'm a human being, you know, I'm a complex character, I make mistakes, I make feelings, feelings, and, yet, and I have feelings, and yet God is always faithful. And so the character of God, which we see throughout and we've discovered as we read, have read through, at this point, if you're getting to Esther, as you've read through the Bible and read through the Old Testament, the character of God that you see like explicitly in, as he acts and as he moves and as he speaks and does different things. Now, when we get to the book of Esther, it gives the reader the opportunity to discern and recognize the way that God works that we've already learned in a totally different context, to discover his faithfulness and his purposes beyond the surface events that we see. So these are some of the themes to look out for as we go through the series. And uh, we will discover them both as the events unfold, and we see like what actually happens, if you like, but also one of the features of the book of Esther is the storytelling itself, the way the story is told. David Firth is a theologian, he says this, he just says, Esther is meant to be enjoyed. The book of Esther represents a high point in the art of storytelling within the Old Testament. And Esther is full of imagery, vivid characters, irony, twists, woven together, all to make a fantastic story. So, you know, sometimes if you go on Netflix and you see at the same time they release like two things at the same time, you've got the like, if it's based on, you know, if it's on true events, you have the documentary version, and then you've got the film version, and often they come out together. Have you noticed that? So this, when you read Esther, it's like the film, it's like the film version, it's to be enjoyed. So today, what I'm just going to do is introduce us to some of the main characters that we get at the beginning of the book, and um, you know when you watch a film or you read a book and the character is first introduced, how they're introduced kind of sets the scene, doesn't it? It gives a clue to their character. It gives a clue to what's going to happen to them. It kind of sets up the expectations. And so we're going to have a look at that today to kind of start off our series, and I'll pull out a couple of thoughts for us. So firstly, the story of Esther was set, is set around 480 BC, so 480 years before Jesus uh, is, came to the earth you know, as a man. And uh, it's during the reign of the Persian Empire, who were the world power at the time. And around 100 years before this, so going back to 586 BC, so we're going back in time, Jerusalem, which had been the capital of Judah and Israel, had been captured and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So if you remember, okay, a little context, this is a bit of context here, okay, you're right with me, it take two minutes, just so you know where we are. So Israel had been a nation, and then they divided into two. They kind of broke apart, and you had Judah in the south and the northern kingdom of Israel in the north. And then for centuries, they began to turn away from God, whereas God had called them to follow him, to be in relationship with him, and to be like a shining light 
in the region and to show people what relationship with God looked like and how, you know, how people could live, how people could know God. And they were meant to be an amazing example for the world and to draw the world closer to God. But instead, they began to turn their back on God. They began to copy the practices of surrounding nations and some dreadful practices as well. And so they just began to look and to copy and to be like those surrounding them, if you like. And so after years of warning, God allows them to fall to these nations that they have been kind of copying and making themselves like. And the north falls to the Assyrians, and then a little while later, Judah falls to the Babylonians, and the people are taken into exile. And this is where we come across Daniel, which we looked in last year's series. And we saw how Daniel was navigating life in a strange and a foreign land, and there's a bit of that in the book of Esther as well. So now fast forward 100 years, the Babylonian Empire, which defeated Jerusalem and took them away as exiles, they themselves have now been defeated and overtaken by the Persian Empire. They are now the new world power, and they've taken over. And King Xerxes I is on the throne. And in the early years of his reign, which often happens when a new emperor would come to power, there was a few um, rebellions as people that he had... His Father had conquered, tried to kind of get their freedom, so the Egyptians rebelled and the Babylonians rebelled, and King Xerxes leads his armies, and he defeats the Egyptians, and he defeats the Babylonians, and he kind of establishes his power, his empire, his authority, his military, you know, leadership and everything. And now next, he goes to plan his next course of action, he plans to invade Greece, his father had lost a battle to the Greeks, and so he wanted to take revenge, and he plans to invade Greece, which was made famous, this story, uh, in very loosely in the, uh, based, the film 300, very loosely based on King Xerxes' uh, invasion or attempt to invade Greece. So that's where we are. Are you with me? So let's have a look how the book of Esther introduces Xerxes and how the story begins. So it says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. So do we get the picture? How, you think about how characters are introduced. This is how we're introduced to Xerxes. Splendor, power, 180-day banquet. That's six Months. Imagine, like, normally at the Jubilee, we had an extra bank holiday. Imagine if we thought, we're going to have six months off, <laughs> and we're all going to have a banquet for six months. Imagine that. That'd be mental. So we get the idea. Now, in this 180 days, this is quite possibly when he's pulled his leaders together, how he's planning his military strategy to, to take on Greece. But also, it's like showing, it's kind of raising the political buy-in that he's got wealth, he's got power. You know, that he's going to gain the support for this invasion. It's like when you see nations today and they do those big military parades once a year and they, you know, their weapons and their tanks and whatever are going, you know what I mean? It's like a show of force. So you'd think 180 days was enough, but for Xerxes, no, it's not. So we read next. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days 
and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. And this palace is where most of the book takes place. And you can actually see it on Google Maps because they've discovered it uh, in you know, archaeologists and everything. So, moving on. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. It was a free bar. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So picture the scene. Gold, decorations, mother of pearl, wine flowing abundantly, a huge display of wealth and the king's generosity. But then the twist comes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they, but when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come, and this made the king furious, and he burned with anger." So Queen Vashti, she refuses to come at the king's beckoning, and she bursts his bubble. 180 days displaying his wealth, his power, his might, his rulership, his empire, and then boom, no, I'm not coming. And at his command, you know, is turned down by his own queen in his own home. So firstly, we note here, number one, the terrible treatment of women that's taking place, and this is kind of a feature of the whole story. And Xerxes has this public persona talking about reflecting the king's generosity and might and power and wealth, but it means nothing when you lack kindness and love in your own home. And we're going to see this comes up in the weeks later, so this will kind of be explored a little more later, because on the flip side, we see the courageous acts of women, and they're a shining light in the book of Esther, and Queen Vashti's refusal Some would say that was a display of dignity from her as well. And in doing so, she exposes the illusion of worldly wealth and power. Because Xerxes, he's probably felt invincible. There was an inscription of his which they found near a fortress in Turkey. And he says this. This is what he wrote. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, king of all kinds of people, king on this earth far and wide. (laughs) He thought he was invincible, but then at the end of the day, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And what is there to show for it now? And in, you know, and some inscriptions on some walls, some stone. Who follows Xerxes today? Who knows a lot about Xerxes? I knew nothing about Xerxes, so I did some reading this week. But how many people across the world know and experience the power and the love of Jesus in their lives? What does all? What is all this? In light of eternity, what does it amount to? As Jesus said to his followers in Luke 12 and to the crowds, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, obviously for us, none of us are in Xerxes' position, 
But this is still a great reminder for us because, you know, in our culture, isn't it, often life is measured by how much we own. Often that is the value, isn't it, that our, you know, society sometimes puts on things or sometimes that's the messaging, you know, that comes with us to get this or to get this and this is the answer to a happy life when you order this on Amazon or whatever. But life is not measured by how much we own and as followers of Jesus and in the kingdom of God, there's something more valuable. How we love others. How we love others. That's what God values. And that is what a fulfilled and purposeful life consists of. Jesus says to his disciples, you know that the rulers in this world, they lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be the leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the difference with Jesus. You know, we didn't come with banquets and, you know, displays of wealth. He gave his life for us on the cross. He gave everything for us because he loves us. He loved others and he loves you. And he's alive today so we can know God's forgiveness in our lives, his relationship and the gift of eternal life. And that's why Jesus is alive and the answer to our world and Xerxes isn't (laughs) and he is amazing and this reminds me of another story about a man who had a banquet in his honor it's a guy called Howard Storm and he was a university professor he was an artist and he taught history of art and he tells his story in the Imagine Heaven series which is a series um, which looks at what happens after we die and it includes stories of people who've had near-death experiences and um, there's thousands of stories all over the world, kind of medically and corroborated and things. These are people who've uh, clinically died, so maybe, you know, heart attack or been in an accident or something. They've had no heartbeat, no brain waves, um, declared dead, and then later revived or resuscitated in some ways. And then they come back with these stories of experiencing a glimpse into life after death. Some people even experiencing a glimpse of heaven, even meeting with Jesus. And Howard Storm had one of these. He tells how he was on a trip to Paris when he had a stomach rupture. He was taken into hospital and he needed emergency surgery to survive. But it was the weekend and there was no one there um, to operate. And he knew, he says, he knew he was dying. And because he was an atheist, he knew that this was, he thought he knew that this was the end. And he dies in the hospital. But then he has one of these near-death experiences. And at first, he describes how it was quite unpleasant and scary until a moment when he calls out to Jesus and Jesus rescues him and saves him in this experience. And then he has this encounter with Jesus and meets with him. And in in this encounter as part of it, they look back over his life together. And um, and then this little clip, Howard Storm will tell you a little bit of what that was like. Uh, So this is a little bit of his story from this series as he has this encounter with Jesus, looking back over his life and what was valuable and what was important. So if you could play that for me, Rob, when you're ready. Thank you. Mine was from when I was born up to the present, moment by moment. Here's the nicest, kindest, most loving being I've ever met, holding me and supporting me. And now I began to experience Jesus and the angels' literal pain with watching scenes in my life. I saw myself turning 
completely away from God, church, all that, and becoming a person who decided that life was all about the biggest, baddest bear in the woods wins. I said to Jesus, uh, you're skipping the most important thing in my life. This is what I live for to get this award, Kentucky Artist of the Year, big banquet in my honor and a big cash prize and everything. And uh, he said, that's not what we're here for you to see. That's not important. The whole emphasis was on people and not on things. Matter of fact, to boil it down to simple words, I was created to be a loving person. We did go through a life review and it was nothing like I would have imagined. One of the things we did was look at many, many, many events throughout my life. I had the most remarkable experience of seeing the impact an event had on me, on my little world, but then also on other people in the world. Okay, there we go. And if you haven't seen it yet, you can, if you go to the website there, you can watch the series, and we're also gonna um, like host it again online, and you can join with us. So we'll let you know about that soon. But Howard Storm, he says how, you know, he says to Jesus, just give me the best part of my life, you know, the banquet in my honor, big prize, hit artist of the year. And Jesus says, that's not really important. What I'm interested in is, how did you treat your students? And Howard discovered that his real purpose was he's created to be a loving person. And this brings us to the second set of main characters in Esther. And we see how they're introduced in a totally different way to Xerxes. So in Esther chapter 2, it says this. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. His family had been among those who had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And so here we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. And in just these few lines, we see how Mordecai displays a totally different set of characteristics. He displays love and kindness, adopting Esther and raising her as his own daughter. And in this, Mordecai reflects God's heart. And as I was preparing this this week and reading over these passages again, this line just really jumped out to me. He raised her as his own daughter. And I think this morning, God wants to remind us that when we welcome Jesus into our lives, that that's what he does for us. That's what he's done for you. He has made you his own. You are his son. You are his daughter. And he loves you. And he's brought you into his family. And no matter what our own home life was like growing up, with God, you are wanted you are safe, you are loved. In Ephesians, it says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Your life and your relationship with God brings him great pleasure. He wanted to do it, and he's done it for you, and he loves you. And so Mordecai reflects this in his own actions, and we'll hear more about him and Esther in the coming weeks. But briefly then, back to Xerxes. The last time we left him, he was drunk and burning with anger, uh, hearing Queen Vashti's refusal. So it says this, back to the story. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. 
he immediately consulted with his wise advisors, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Memucan answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king. This guy likes to exaggerate, I feel, okay? Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wise of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. This guy, honestly. So, if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another king more, no, sorry, another queen more worthy than she. When the decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Oh, this is hilarious. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed Memucan's counsel, and he sent letters to all parts of the empire. So in this passage, we see on display the rashness and the foolishness of Xerxes and his nobles. Firstly, apparently they, they fear that what will happen, what will happen if people find out about Vashti's refusal, which probably up to this point, only a handful of them, only the eunuchs probably know, and, you know, Xerxes and his nobles. So they think, oh, what's going to happen when everyone knows? So they decide to deal with it by sending a decree throughout the whole empire, announcing it to everyone. So they obviously don't have a PR team. So number one. Then secondly, he's, Xerxes has clearly not learned his lesson that power doesn't buy respect, doesn't buy respect at home. And by suddenly putting this into law, that now supposedly men will receive proper respect from their wives. Obviously, that's not going to work. And then thirdly, he signs into law a permanent law, a law that cannot be revoked, that Queen Vashti must be banished forever, which as we see, as his anger cools and he sobers up, he begins to regret. And so straight after, not long after we read this, later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And in the language and the way it's written, it suggests that he was missing her and he regretted what he had done. But because it was a law that could not be revoked, what he had done in haste and in anger and on, you know, uh, on, when he was drunk, he now couldn't undo. And in his opening scene, we see a feature of Xerxes' life, which is we see throughout the book of Esther. And the book of Esther, in some ways, you can't miss it. It becomes a parable of the dangers of drinking too much. Um, one commentator says, Xerxes seems to be testing out the theory that the best cure for a hangover is another drink. Now, last week, I looked at the story of how Jesus turned water into wine for a whole wedding, you know, seven, what was it, 180 gallons worth. So there's nothing wrong with alcohol and it's there to be enjoyed, but obviously drinking too much and getting drunk is a gateway to trouble. 
in our responses, in our emotions, in our spending, in our actions. We do things out of character. And there's a practical point in the book of Esther that you can't read it without missing, is simply don't get drunk. Um, in Ephesians, Paul also puts it this way. He says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Use every chance you have for doing good, because these are evil times. So do not be foolish, but learn what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, which will ruin you, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know that in some contexts, where, there's a, you know, where there can be particular drinking cultures, you know, workplaces, sports teams, sometimes university, there can be a pressure and a challenge that goes with it, pressure to fit in. And we might all come across this in different parts and different walks of our life, different places. Students, that can be a challenge as well, especially when you first arrive freshers week and initiations, etc. But let me just encourage you to stick to your guns, you know, to know your limit, stick to your guns. You've normally only got to say it once, or oh, that's enough for me tonight, or, you know, I'm only having this much. Normally you say it once, and people respect you after that, and they, you know, they won't try and push, push you again, if they are. You know, people these days, are a lot, I, find, I think, are generally a lot more respectful. You don't get it as much. But stick to your guns. You normally have to say it once. In Xerxes' case, his rash decision sets off a chain of events which Esther will soon find herself brought into, and we will see what happens to her next week. So I think we're in for a good series. Some things to look out for is God's faithfulness, God's commitment, God's working behind the scenes, and then some acts of courage and bravery to inspire us. So, should we pray? Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness, and your goodness to us. I thank you that you meet us in our lives in real ways. I thank you that you have rescued us. And I thank you that we do not have to measure our lives by how much we have or what we've achieved or how much we own, but you lift that pressure off us because what you value is how we love the people that we meet and that we know. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, would you empower us to be loving people and to love others like you have loved us? And I pray, would you speak to us and inspire us and encourage us as we go through this series over the next few weeks? In Jesus' name, amen.